Well, good morning again. Good morning. Welcome. Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles? You can grab your own, or there should be several Bibles in the pew back in front of you. And uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and uh, we will be uh, beginning in verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, as we continue our sermon series on the uh, Gospel of Matthew, the King and His Kingdom, taking a look at part one of the disciples' beliefs. The disciples' beliefs. I'd like to tell you a, a little tale, a little story this morning about two types of obedience. A little story to illustrate two types of obedience, two types of righteousness, to use the language of Jesus. So there once was a father, and uh, he had two sons, an older son and a younger son. And uh, the father told his two sons to mow the yard. One of them, the older son, was to mow the front yard, and uh, the younger son was to mow the backyard. And so he sent his sons off, and he went about doing uh, some other other housework. And uh, about an hour, hour and a half later, he came back to see uh, what his sons were doing and what progress they had made. Well, the first son uh, obeyed his father and mowed the yard, kind of. So as the father began to look at the yard, he noticed that the yard uh, had been scalped. It was uh, cut very, very shortly, all the way down to the the dirt, and uh, he was displeased with that. The son had used uh, the the lowest setting on the lawnmower. Well, he began to look at the rest of the yard, and, well, uh, the the grass had just been thrown on the sidewalk and and on the driveway and, and not picked up. As he moved along, he looked at his wife's flower garden, and the flowers had been mowed down by his son, which made him angry. And he continued to look, and uh, as he looked over uh, on the, this side of the yard, there was a whole patch of grass that wasn't scalped. It just hadn't been mowed. It was just like it, like it was. And so the dad was, of course, a little frustrated. And so he finds the, the, the first son, and he said, Son, what, what happened? Why didn't you mow the grass like I, like I told you to? And look, look, the, the grass is, is all gone. What, what happened? And the son replied, well, you just told me to mow. You didn't tell me to change the setting on the blade. So the dad asked, well, why is there grass everywhere? Why didn't you clean up? To which the son replied, well, you just told me to mow. You didn't tell me to sweep up the grass. The father's getting a little angrier. And he said, why did you run over your mother's petunias? And he said, you didn't tell me to not mow over them. You just said to mow the yard. And they were in the, in the yard, so I, I mowed over them. And at this point, he's very angry. And uh, he inquires, what about that patch over there? It's not even, not even mowed. Why didn't, you, why didn't you do that? He said, well, I ran out of gas. And he said, well, you didn't gas it up before you started mowing? And the son said, no, well, you just told me to mow. So I started up and I mowed. You didn't tell me to, to put gas in the, in the lawnmower. Friends, let me ask you a quick question. Did the first son obey his father? Yes, in a strict sense. He did what the father said, but of course we know that not really, right? He didn't really obey the wishes, the intent of his father's command. You could say he obeyed the letter of the law, but did he obey the spirit of the law? No, he certainly did not. The second son comes along, and the father uh, looks uh, at what the second son had done, and he mowed the yard neatly at the appropriate length. And he looked in the backyard, and he picked up all of the, all of the grass, and he had even swept the driveway there in the backyard. And 
not only that, but he saw that the, the, the weed eater had been out and was hot. He even weed eated. And not only that, but he, he washed the lawnmower and he put it away. And so the, the son says uh, to the father, Dad, I've, I've done what you've asked me to do. And he said, well done, right? Well done, good and faithful son. So did the second son obey his father? Yes, he obeyed his father. Did he obey the letter of the law? He did. Let me ask you this. Did he obey the spirit of the law? Did he obey his father's intentions? Yes, of course he did. This is a picture of the two contrasting obediences, the two contrasting righteousnesses, if you will, that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, of course, is represented by the first son. They obeyed the letter of the law, but they didn't obey the spirit of the law. And the second picture, the second son, is a picture of, of Jesus' teaching. It's a picture of his disciples and the type of righteousness and obedience that, that he requires of us. See, Jesus is going to illustrate for us these two types of obedience. And he's going to do so by looking at six Old Testament commandments. Three of which we'll look at today, and three of which we'll look at in a couple weeks. He's going to tell us that kingdom obedience is an obedience that is not just interested in fulfilling the lowest requirement of the law. That's what the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day did. He's going to say that kingdom of obedience tries to fulfill the intention and the meaning and the purpose of the law as well. I want to follow this morning an approach that I first saw by the president of Dallas Seminary, Dr. Mark Bailey, as I uh, listened to his Gospels class. And so as he taught this particular section, he used this sort of outline. He identified uh, three sections to each of these little uh, commands that we're going to take a look at. First, we'll, we'll look at the ultimate effect of the sin in question. The ultimate effect, that is, what is the, um, the consequence of, of, the, of, the, of the sin in our heart? He's going to show us the ultimate effect effect. We're going to look at the root cause, that is, what is the root cause in the heart of the sin in question, and then Jesus will give us a heart solution for each of these Old Testament commands, an effect, a cause, and then a solution. That's the grid that we'll use as we begin, starting in verse 21. Jesus begins in verses 21 through 26. He, uh, he quotes and gives the first teaching of the Old Testament, and it's on the prohibition against murder. We begin in verse 21 with the ultimate effect. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. He's saying, this is what the teachers of the law are teaching you. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. So here Jesus is speaking to the teaching of the day. This is the the standard teaching of the religious leaders. He quotes the sixth commandment. And he says that the teachers of the law, what you're familiar with, taught and simply believed that murder only consisted of the taking of a life, leaving one liable to civil courts. So here the ultimate effect that Jesus is getting at is, of course, murder. So you may be thinking, all right, I'm doing okay here. I haven't committed murder in many years, and so I'm good, right? I can just tune you out. Well, in case you're thinking that, Jesus moves on. And he moves from the ultimate effect of the sin to the root cause of the sin in verse 22. He gets a little bit closer to home. He says, he says this, a paraphrase. If you never want to commit murder, if you don't ever want to commit physical murder, 
what is the root cause, if left unchecked in our lives, that could actually lead to murder? Well, Jesus identifies the root cause as anger. Verse 22, but, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, likely the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Notice the progression that Jesus moves here, the progression both in angry expressions, verbal angry expressions, and the uh, progression uh, in guilt, if you will, or the progression in in, uh, levels of judgment. Jesus here teaches that God's intent behind the law against murder also involved murder's motive. It also includes murder's motive, which is anger. Here, he says, the, he says if, you, if, you, if you say to your brother, Raka, right, which, is, which literally means empty head, it would be akin to calling someone, you stupid, you're stupid. That's, that's the language that Jesus uses here. If you call someone Raka, you're answerable to the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court, some translations may say. And then he ups the ante. He says, if anyone, uh, anyone who says, you fool, Fool, literally, is where we get our word moron. You stupid. You empty head. You fool. He says you will be in danger, not just with the earthly court, but you will be in danger of a heavenly court. The dangers, he says, of the fire of hell. So here we see that true righteousness, true obedience to God, this is what Jesus is getting at. It's not just refraining from murder. It's, it's not just taking the smoking gun out of your hand, right? It's not just taking the dripping knife out of your, out of your fist, right? He says it's not just refraining from murder. It's refraining from the hatred that leads to murder. And not only that, but it's not just refraining from the hatred that leads to murder, but it's replacing that hatred with a concern for human life. See, Jesus goes deep here. It's not just we don't murder, but it's we treat people with respect, right? His point is that human life is precious, so we don't kill people, we don't murder, but not only do we not murder them, but we don't hurt them with our words either, right? We don't just not kill them, but we treat them with respect. We value them as a human being, Made in God's image. So friends, let me ask you. You committed any murder lately? Committed any murder with the tone of your voice? With the words that proceed from your lips? You idiot! You fool! You moron! Jesus says, listen. That type of angry expression is akin to sticking the knife in their back. So, friends, God cares about how we treat people. That's the intent of the sixth commandment. He cares about how we treat other human beings, both in our actions and in our words. So what is Jesus' heart solution? We see it in 23 through 26. Therefore, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, 
leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Verse 25. Settle matters quickly. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. What is Jesus doing here? What is his prescription to this type of anger? He uses two illustrations. The first one is a religious illustration, having to do with making an offering at the temple there in Jerusalem. The second one is a civil illustration, that of a lawsuit, if you will. But both of the illustrations make the same point. Jesus makes the same point with both illustrations, and his his point is simply this. Reconcile before it's too late. Reconcile before it's too late. See, the, the heart solution for our expressions of anger, whether it be with the knife or with our words, is to go to the one we have offended and hurt and to seek reconciliation. Notice the repetition. Jesus says, first go and be reconciled. Verse 25, he says, settle matters. Reconcile with them. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. Of course, this involves confession. It involves asking forgiveness. It involves uh, changing behavior. But Jesus says that Let's put it this way. Jesus says that we should do what Barney Fife. Remember that character, Barney Fife? Barney Fife, right on, on the Andy Griffith show, he often counseled Sheriff Andy to, to do this. Let's watch the clip here. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. We're all familiar with that, right, if you've seen that. Nip it in the bud. That's what Jesus is saying. That's, that's his heart solution. Don't let it go any longer. Don't let that relationship go any longer. So friends, is there someone maybe that you have murdered this morning with your words? Do you need to nip that offense in the bud, so to speak, by seeking reconciliation before the ship of that relationship has sailed? Well, Jesus has taught us God's intention and what true obedience to the command against murder looks like. He moves then in verses 27 through 30 from the sixth commandment to the seventh. The commandment prohibiting adultery. Let's look now at verse 27 at the ultimate effect. The ultimate effect of sin in the heart here is the sin of adultery. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, Again saying, this is what the religious teachers of the day are saying. Right? This is their view. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, the seventh command. Once again, the religious leaders were teaching a very shallow view of these commandments. See, they were teaching that adultery was merely, that it was only committed by an external bodily act perpetrated with someone other than your spouse. That's what they thought adultery was. Jesus wanted to add to that. But let me, let me ask, is that how we view this term? Is that what we view adultery as? Is it, can we be duped into believing that sexual sin here, adultery, is, it's only committed by the members of our bodies. It's merely a physical act. 
Is that how Jesus sees it? We're going to find out that he goes, once again, deeper to the heart and the intent and the meaning of the law. In verse 28, as he shows us the root cause of adultery. But, verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Certainly we can switch the genders here. In sharp contrast then to the externalism of the rabbis, Jesus affirms that lust in the heart, which is a way of, of, of describing our, our desires. The heart is seen in the Bible as the seat of our desires, our longings. So he says this, that if you've lusted in your desires, in your heart, that that is the root cause of adultery. And therefore, it is akin to adultery itself in God's eyes. Jesus tells us it's, it's not just intercourse that breaks sexual purity, but everything that leads up to it. See, fantasizing about immorality, fantasizing about immorality is as sinful as physical immorality. And just because, because one takes place in the bed and has more consequences, and the other takes place in the brain and has fewer consequences, doesn't make one more wrong or less wrong. Jesus here gets to the root of the sexual sin of, of adultery. So what then is the heart solution? We see it in verses 29 and 30. It's one of those when we read it, we blush and we scratch our head because we don't know what Jesus means. If, he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, that is to commit adultery or to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to, be, to go into hell. So we read that and we scratch our heads and we say, what is Jesus talking about? Is he being literal here or is, he's, is he using some kind of figures of speech? What does he mean? Well, I think as with murder, as with handling the, the heart solution to murder, Jesus here, I think, gives two illustrations, just like we saw a moment ago. Two illustrations to make the same point. Now, some Christians, uh, historically speaking, have taken Jesus here quite literally. Some commentators see in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to stumble, they see that as a euphemism. And if you don't know what that means, Google it and look it up. It's a, it's a euphemism. And so one a church father by the name of Origen took this quite literally, and he castrated himself in order to obey Jesus' teaching here. So friends, how should we view this? I think probably Origen missed the point. I think Jesus' heart-level solution here is to do all that we must do to remove the stimulus. Dr. Constable in his commentary writes this, Jesus' point was that his disciples must deal radically with sin. We must avoid, he says, temptation at all costs. You know, someone once used the old adage, if you're on a diet, then you don't keep eclairs in the fridge, right? You don't do that. You avoid the temptation. You remove the stimulus. So men, I'll speak to us as a man, this might involve uh, removing some likely stimulus from us. It, maybe it's TV shows. Maybe it's uh, 
internet sites or access. Maybe it's certain magazines and the like. For women, uh, it, may, it may be putting down the romance novel or maybe removing uh, uh, certain TV shows or movies that might encourage some sort of fantasy. For all of us, it might look like different things. But the point is very clear. Remove the stimulus. For some of us, it may mean actually removing ourselves from a relationship, if we're not married, from a relationship that, are, that, that we have because we simply can't say no sexually. And so the stimulus that might need to be removed is that other person that you're dating. I have uh, read of an instance as I was preparing this week of a, of a coyote. And the coyote was caught in a hunter's trap. And the trap had the leg, the paw of the coyote. And so the coyote, of course, wanted to free himself from that. And so he ended up eating off his, his foot maiming himself for life, so to speak, to free his body from what he thought was certain peril. Friends, Jesus similarly says that we should have the same tenacity and the same willingness to rid ourselves of whatever it is that ensnares us into sexual sin. So let me ask you, disciple of Jesus, if you claim to follow Christ, You are his disciple. You have been born again. Are you willing to remove whatever needs to be removed so that as a faithful follower of Jesus, that you can be sexually pure and follow the intent of the seventh commandment? Well, Jesus has spoken of murder, 21 through 26. He's spoken of adultery, 27 through 30. He moves on now to what is a related issue. In the, in the Greek text, you can see that these two sections are related to one another. It's a related but separate issue and a related but separate command. He now moves to the issue of divorce, that which I will call lust-driven divorce. Remember, he's just talked about lust, and now he relates that to the issue of divorce in his day, lust-driven divorce which Jesus also says is adultery. Verses 32 and 33. Again, in verse 31, we begin with the ultimate effect. The ultimate effect, and it's found in verse 31. It has been said, Jesus says. Again, he's quoting the teaching of some of the religious leaders of his day. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. As we wade into these waters, we need to understand the context of this prohibition or this commandment that Jesus quotes. This quotation is found in a portion of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Specifically, the section that Jesus quotes is found in chapter 24, uh, verse 1. And remember, he's doing so in order to speak of, to refer to a dominant view of divorce in his day. There is a context here that is so important that we understand. And we need to understand not only the, the context of Jesus' day, but what is going on in Deuteronomy 24. So, in Deuteronomy 24, back there, God addresses and prohibits that which was many commentators believe, and I agree with them, was an abominable practice in the ancient Near East. That is, Deuteronomy 24, God wrote in order to prohibit his old covenant people from 
participating in this type of practice. Now, the practice was that which I would call, here we go, ready? Wife swapping. Wife swapping. In which, let me play the scenario out. I think Deuteronomy 24 is prohibiting God's people from doing this. This practice of wife swapping. So here's what would happen. There would be a man, and he would divorce his wife in order to allow his wife to be married to another man for a time period. While simultaneously, that is at the same time, he would then marry the freshly or newly divorced wife of that other man. Does that make sense? It was a wife swap. You would divorce your wife, allow him to go marry for a time period this other man, and at the same time, the other man would do the same with his wife and allow you to marry his newly divorced wife. It was a wife swap, if you will. Both men would then remarry after this affair, if you will. Both men would then remarry their original wives. And that's the prohibition in Deuteronomy 24. And that is what Jesus is referring to, I believe, when he quotes this portion of Deuteronomy 24.1. Anyone who divorces his wife, the, the uh, Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day, all, the, all he had to do was simply give his wife a certificate of divorce. So what was happening is this wife swap was in a sense a way of legally committing adultery. So Jesus speaks to this. He weighs in on this teaching of the day. Thus, the sin here that I think Jesus is addressing is what I will call lust-driven divorce. It's divorcing one, one spouse simply to marry another. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Deuteronomy 24, explains. He says this. He says, evidently, Israel's neighbors would divorce their mates, marry someone else, and then remarry their first spouse after their, quote, affair. The commentator McGee agrees. He adds, he says, God doesn't agree to wife swapping, which this would amount to. There is to be no trading back and forth. So, with the context of Deuteronomy 24 in mind, Jesus quotes 24.1 to identify this practice as one that was permitted by some of the rabbis and teachers in his day. Now, not all of them. There was a division on this. And as we make our way through Matthew and find our way eventually to Matthew 19, we'll address this more fully. But one of the dominant views of the day was that this practice would be permitted because they thought that in Deuteronomy 24.1, that when the text says that uh, a man can uh, divorce his wife, uh, that he could do so, they interpreted, for any reason at all. In fact, in Matthew 19.3, we see the Pharisees quoting this very verse, but notice what they say. They ask Jesus this question. They say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, now notice these words, for any and every reason? See, that was a, a dominant teaching of one of the group of rabbis, that if, if your wife burnt your toast, you could divorce her. If you just were, were tired of what she looked like, you could divorce her. If she was bugging you, you could divorce her for any and every reason. That was a, 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 one of the popular views. And so Jesus takes this on. He takes it on here. In sharp contrast to permitting this practice on the basis of a wrong interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, Jesus rightly interprets God's intent. 
in verse 32. He reveals the root cause of this practice, lust-driven divorce, I will call it. Jesus says in verse 32, but I tell you, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, here Jesus is clearly condemning the divorces of both men involved in this wife swap. He says to the first man, he says to the first man who, quote, divorces his wife, he makes her the victim of adultery. That is so clear, is it not? He commits adultery against her because he intends to marry the other man's wife. He says to the second man, he condemns his action. Actions, who marries the first man's divorced wife, that he too is also guilty of adultery. Jesus also here significantly gives one of the biblically outlined exceptions for divorce. He says, except for sexual immorality, which simply refers to all sorts of sexual unfaithfulness and sin. So, Jesus says, the second man who marries the first man's divorced wife is also guilty of adultery. And by doing so, he is outlining here for us the condemnation of lust-driven divorce. So, here we see clearly, I think, that the root cause of this particular divorce and this situation is what I will call selfishness. Selfishness. In this context, Deuteronomy 24, this man, these men collectively, simply desire another woman out of lust. In other words, if I'm going to get divorced for any reason other than what God says is permissible, what is my root problem in this scenario? It has to be selfishness. Friends, this happens today as well. A man gets tired of his wife and he wants someone younger and he feels like is more attractive, so he simply divorces her and marries someone younger. A woman tires of his, her, her husband's faults and failures and she seeks someone better. Friends, there are biblically sanctioned permissions for divorce, but selfishness, lust-driven selfishness here in the context of Deuteronomy 24 is not one of them. So, What is Jesus' heart solution? Well, the heart solution is really not as evident in this particular section. We have to infer it from what Jesus is condemning. So the heart solution, I would suggest, is to accept the standard of God. To accept the standard of God for marriage. Jesus has made it clear that lust-driven divorce is not God's standard. It's not his design. It's not his intent. So what is well, it's the opposite. It's fidelity. It's, it's faithfulness to one's spouse. And while Jesus doesn't outline God's intent here, in Matthew 19, which is a parallel passage, he does. In Matthew 19, 4 through 6, Jesus says this, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? And he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So, They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So, we've seen the, we've seen the, the effect, we've seen the root cause, and then the heart solutions. Friends, we live in a fallen world, and God permits divorce under some circumstances, but it is not His design, it's not His desire. It's detrimental to all who are involved. So, let me encourage you from Jesus' ideal. Embrace God's design, his plan for marriage. 
Believe it to be true. Trust in it. Follow it. Pursue it. Endure in it in your marriage. And friends, you won't, you won't be disappointed. So we've seen three Old Testament commands. This is how the religious leaders were teaching it. This is how Jesus teaches it. This is what real righteousness, obedience to God from the heart looks like. We have seen three examples in two contrasting obediences, haven't we? We've seen the obedience of the first son. He kind of obeyed the law, but not really. He really didn't care to. We've seen the obedience of the second son, which Jesus explains to us. The religious leaders, they interpreted, they instructed, and they lived out God's word like the first son. But Jesus' followers should pursue doing it like the second son. They wanted to minimize the law. Jesus wants to maximize it. They want to get around it. Jesus says, don't find ways to get around it. Find ways to obey it. So, as we close our sermon this morning, let's return to our story. There's the first son, and there's the second son. There's the first type of obedience, and there's the second type of obedience. There's the first type of righteousness, and the second type of of righteousness. So we need to ask ourselves, in these matters and in all matters of obedience to God as his disciples, which obedience is more like ours? Another way to put it, is is our obedience more like the first sons? Or is our obedience more like the second sons? Friends, that, that is what true righteousness, Jesus says, for his followers. That's what it looks like. Let's pray.